Could you please take your Bible to Exodus chapter 23? Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23 and verses 1 through 9. In verse 1, we see the word, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We are uh, we're joyful this morning about the service, and uh, we look forward to celebrating baptism later in our in our gathering. And as I think about that, I I look around and I see so many friends and family members here who have come to celebrate that confession of salvation together with their friends and family. Um, if you are a visitor today, you will learn soon that we are in the middle of a study of the civil law of God in Exodus. <clears throat> it, it's, it's been challenging on some uh, turns uh, because as much as anything, we're responsible to not only say, this is what the Bible says, but there are so many occasions where we're also responsible to say, this is not what the Bible says coming to these texts and making uh, careful applications of the law of God. Uh, let me real quickly then give you some context, so especially for those of you who are here in the middle of this series and maybe haven't heard some of this. We know that there are three uses of the law. We know that there are three uses of the law. Uh, children's church, if you'd like to, this door. Nursery, if you'd like to, that side. Um... And then after the service, those young people are going to come back and uh, watch the baptism. So, ushers, the four and five-year-olds are wanting to know when the time has come for them to come back in and, and see the public profession of the gospel and baptism. So, ushers, as you see this uh, ending, if you could please go get them. They're ready to come back in. Um, there's three uses of the law. We know that there is a use of the law that helps mirror what we need in God. It tells us what God is like and it tells us what we are like. The law reveals to us that we are in need of his holiness and righteousness because we do not have our own. There's another use of the law that it guards 
It guards. The law says things like don't steal and don't murder. That's a good guard. The law also guides. And this is the part of the law that we're in. The guiding part. We read all this instruction about legal process, about uh, taking a bribe when you're going to court, being paid off to give a certain witness. And so there's all this instruction that guides people, and in this sense too, it guards people. So these three parts of the law have three uses. They are theological, they are civil, and they are Christian. And so applying these from this text has taken a little bit of time. I don't know how many of you ever go back in and watch uh, the sermons online, but I was made aware this week that two of the last three sermons have been the longest sermons that I have ever preached at this church. So congratulations to all of you who were there for that. That's monumental. And to be honest, when I was told that, um, I was surprised because it didn't feel that way because it feels like it's just going so fast and we're having to get through long paragraphs about uh, fairly difficult topics. So, Lord willing, it is not our intent to go for a third this morning. I'm going to start by explaining to you what I think is a literary pattern that's going to be really helpful for you to read the Bible here. So, coming to chapter 23, verses 1 through 9, there is a literary tool called chiasm. This is in a chiastic structure. Um, I guess maybe the most helpful thing I could give you is to see it like a key. Like there is a point of the key, and then there are channels in the key leading back up to the handle. So think of it that way. That's generic, but think of it like a key. Now, when you look at a key, the top part of the key and the bottom of the part of the key match. The grooves match. They go the same way. The tip of the key is the most important part. What we're looking at here in these nine verses is chiastic structure. So it's an old pattern for a writer to write something out like this. Here's the way it looks in this text. Verse 1 and verse 8 are the same notch in the key. Verse 2 and 7, 3 and 6. Same notches. So if you're going to read this in a way you think, boy, I want to know, know exactly what this is saying, you would look at verse 3 and verse 6. And you'll find that they say pretty similar things, or at least expound on the same idea. In a chiastic structure, there's a really exciting point at the tip of the key. So the tip of the key is the main emphasis. That's verses 4 and 5. So in this structure, we can look at verses 1 and 8, 2 and 7, 3 and 6, and then we see the heart of the matter, the bigger issue in verses 4 and 5. The way I'm going to break this down then is 1 through 3, 6 through 8 are going to be one point. That is justice for the poor. And then verses 4 and 5, accompanied by verse 9. Verse 9 tags in with 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 will be justice to the foreigner. So here's the point we've been in. If you're joining us today and weren't here last week, you look back to chapter 22 and you see the paragraph heading, Social Justice above verse 16. Laws for social justice. Social justice can be a very ambiguous concept. It can be hard to really define what is social justice. And we could fill weeks with debate about social justice. 
And the word of the Lord ministered to us last week with an emphasis that justice, rightly applied horizontally, must first be rightly accorded vertically. We have to be brought back into a right relationship to God. And this, of course, is only done by the regenerating work of Jesus Christ applied by the Spirit of God. So once that is true, I would suggest then there is light, there is discernment about applying social justice horizontally. Now, we know that there are many people who are trying to do social justice without, in fact, being born of the Spirit of God. And so sometimes we see them do it in a way that can be frustrating. Sometimes. But the point is, you and I, who have the life of Christ, that's John 14 we were reading before, you and I who may have the life of Christ, we are best equipped, not exclusively, but best, to do horizontal justice. So the hope isn't that there's no social justice. The hope is that it's something we get to steward because we've been brought from death to life. For example, it's a little easier for us to define what murder is. It's a little easier for us to defend human life because of the way we regard human life as the image of God. So having been brought to a place of spiritual regeneration, a spiritual life, where we say, aha, we have value because we are the image of a God who is of great value. That equips us to, I think, do a little bit better stewardship of social justice as it relates to things like life and death or even capital punishment. So coming then to this section, it seems like in chapter 23... There is a continued paragraph that deals with hurdles to social justice. So, um, just think about your own situation. What was your upbringing like? What was your upbringing like? Uh, was, what was money like in your context as a younger person? Um, <laughs> it would be really fun to listen to everyone tell a little story about whether, whether money was easy, whether money was hard, and the different comical events that came out of those things. I have a couple that I'm refraining from telling because, again, we're not going for the longest sermon today. Think about what was your life like relating to other people who were different than you. What were you conditioned to think about Christian or non-Christian? Or people of a different appearance or ethnicity, background. And those things become potential hurdles to social justice. It, it becomes hard for us to maybe be most just in our application to someone who has an economic diversity from us. They're totally different. I can't even understand. Like, for instance, if you grew up in hardship... And now you're trying to be fair and gracious and helpful to someone who grew up with a, quote, silver spoon. You might say, oh, listen, I've, I've put in my time. 
You're putting in your time. Work it out. Not my problem. Maybe. Or maybe, maybe, and please be honest, maybe you struggle a little bit with a, um, a discrimination toward people who are different. It could be politically different, geographically different. You know, those, those Southerners, you know, those Southerners, boy, those, right? Those Southerners. Or, you know, Josh is coming. I'm sure Nicole, Nicole is super, super sweet. But Josh, on the other hand, you know, Josh, Josh comes from the West Coast and he's always trying to help me understand, like, hey, you know, that's a Midwest way of thinking about it. I'm like, what? Everyone doesn't think that way? So he's always helped me with that West Coast distinction. And, uh, and whatever it might be, maybe it's people who come from different countries. Maybe it's people who have different color skin. And, and to be honest, have you ever found yourself kind of unpacking and going, oh, I didn't even know I had been exposed to that as a kid. And you remember like some really off-colored joke or some, some generic statement or some presupposition that you were exposed to. And so what happens is those things in our fallenness, they become hurdles to social justice. And the tool of them the Bible uses here today is economics. How will we be just toward both rich and poor? And then the other one is our biases toward a foreigner or a stranger, someone who's not like us, someone who's simply not like us. So let's study today, and we're going to use that chiastic structure, and we're going to look at first, how do, how do we be just toward people who are financially or economically different, and how do we be just toward people who are uh, uh, foreign or maybe um, uh, not discriminate against them. So let's start with the first one. Justice for the poor. So we're going to look at one through three, and it's mirror in six through eight. One through three has a mirror in six through eight. These laws expand slightly from the ninth command. In Exodus 20, verse 16, the emphasis on these verses is honesty in speaking about other people. So when God said in his 10 words, in his 10 commands, don't bear false witness. These are some applications of that. Okay? So the first one is this. He warns us in verse 1 and 8 that false reporting will subvert justice. Look at verse 1. You should not spread a false report. Spreading a false report would be a damage to the covenant community. I would suggest that when we speak carelessly, I want you to understand, it's not necessarily that you woke up in the morning and you spelled out this malicious communication about someone. Like, okay, step one, I'm going to say this. Step two, I'm going to say this. Step three. I would suggest that it's just carelessness that we should be most guarded against. It's that accidental misrepresentation. It's telling too much of a story or too little of a story. When that happens, it influences what we think about each other. When I tell a story to one of you about another one, and I maybe really overemphasize a certain part of the story or leave out another part of the story... I really influence what we think about each other. A false report can make justice almost impossible to come by. If you have heard so many negative things about a particular person, and then in comes an accusation, well, that person who I've heard stole before is now being accused of stealing, I might come to a abrupt conclusion that they are guilty. 
when we speak falsely, we threaten unity. We seriously threaten unity, which is already fragile enough. It's so dependent on Christ to have unity. And then we come in and do things. In fact, this is why the Bible says that God hates those who sow discord among Christians. A false word can tear unity right in half. As I wrote that this week, I thought about you all are familiar with the Hatfields and the McCoys. And I thought, how did that happen again? How did it start? You ever wonder how it started? You could summarize, you could boil it down to a misrepresentation of the ownership of a hog. (laughs) So what has become an epic example of disunity and feuding started with one person saying, that's my pig. And another person saying, no, that's my pig. And then they spent the next few decades fighting about who had lied and who hadn't. It threatens unity and it undermines the legal process. Justice, which is so precious, is hard to come to when people are speaking dishonestly. He goes on to say this at the second half of verse 1. Do not join hands with a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Two or more people are in collusion. They say, okay, so what we're going to do so that we don't get blamed, let's all say so-and-so did it. Now, the warning from God to his people is, don't be a part of that. Quite simply, avoid that. Because in the Bible, Jesus actually says in John 8, 17, he says, isn't it true that in your law, that truth is determined by the testimony of two or more witnesses? It, It is true. It is true. People who would come together and take the stand and say, yes, I saw it, yes, I saw it, and I saw it. In fact, this was what was falsely done to Jesus. They brought in false witnesses and say, did any of you see him say it? Oh yeah, I saw him. I I saw he said that. I I saw that. I saw that. And he was considered guilty by the hand of two or three witnesses. So don't be one of those false witnesses. Absolute honesty in giving testimony is essential. Look at verse 8. Here's the mirror of it. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Okay, let me, let me just walk through the warnings. Don't take money. Immediately when your honesty has been purchased by another, your honesty is subject to their definition, not yours. Much more God's. First Timothy 6, I want to remind you, money is not the root of all evil, is it? It's the love of it. And if paid off to sin against God... Money can become a root evil. So dismissing a lawsuit because a couple people come together and say, oh, no, 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 we testify this way or that way, actually ruins justice. So many societies, we, I think it's hard for us to understand the weight of this instruction. And so many societies, getting a building permit or getting approval to live a place or rent a place or work a certain job requires a permission that is so often gained by paying for it. You've got to bribe someone. You're not going to get anything done here without bribery. And so this warning comes into a fallen people and says don't operate by what it profits you, but operate by what is true and what is right. 
And then I want you to notice in verse 8, I want you to notice a word. That word is subvert. Now, other times in this passage, we're warned that if we lie, justice is perverted. This time, he says, justice will be subverted. So here's what that means. And I want you to understand this. When it comes to doing justly with each other, there are two errors that could happen. One is, you don't arrive at justice at all. You know what a hung jury is? It doesn't mean the jury loses and they get hanged. It means, it means the jury couldn't come to a conclusion. They didn't know. And likely that happens because there are conflicting testimonies. Ah, there's no, there's no strong... We don't know. We, we can't come to a conclusion. This is a mistrial. The jury doesn't know. That's subverted justice. Perverted justice would be to come to the wrong conclusion, but to come to a conclusion. So here the warning is, when you bear a false witness, when you come together with people for money and you get into a group and say, okay, here's the story we're going to give. Let's get our story straight. Justice can't be reached. There's another way where justice is perverted and the wrong person is guilty or the wrong person is innocent. But this is subverted justice. The power of a bribe to make someone ignore the evidence or to misrepresent the evidence. Look at not only do we see that in bribery or dishonesty, false reporting subverts justice, we see also that mob mentality perverts justice. Mob mentality. So look at verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many as to, here's the word, pervert justice. The translation of falling in with the many, the majority. Listen, on Mother's Day... I want to make it clear about the absolute biblical instruction you heard from your mother growing up. Because you know what this is? This is when your mom would say, if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? That's, that's mama theology. It's right here in Exodus 23. You shall not fall in with the many. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it okay for you to do. The translation, many, is the majority. If I take this position, if I, if, I, if I give this testimony, if I say this thing, I'm going to have a really small group of people who are going to be on my side. But all the rest of the people are over here saying this thing. And if I say that thing, there's strength in numbers. I'll be secure. And again, the person who might already have a, a long record of offense. And so... We, we rush to conclusions and say, oh, they've done it before. I'm sure they've done it this time. We jump in with the many. Now look at its mirror in verse 7. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. There's a warning. Have nothing to do with false charge. Another change on the prevailing theme of absolute uncorrupted justice as essential to the people who are Yahweh's and in his covenant. What was implicit in several laws is now stated here plainly. No one should ever be involved in any way with a complaint against someone in a court case 
That's not entirely true. Honesty is essential. So, do not put an innocent or honest person to death. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. And then the warning, for I will not acquit the wicked. God makes clear that those of us who misrepresent or lie or give poor testimony because that's what everyone else is doing will face the judgment of God. C, there's another one. Not just speaking falsely, not just mob mentality, but also partiality will pervert justice. Verse 3. You should not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Partial to a poor man. That seems weird. Well, I, I usually am not partial to the lesser influential individual, right? I mean, if, if I'm going to pick a side, I'm going to pick the side of the person who is uh, maybe going to be able to return a favor to me someday. But here, God's law says, don't favor the poor. Really? In social justice, don't favor the poor. Do, do, do we generally have to be told that? Don't we have to be told, don't favor the rich? Because that was happening, you know, in James. James says, why do you have such favoritism for the rich? When they come into church services, you give them the best seats. But when poor people come in, you tell them to sit on the ground next to the best seats. The language is actually sit here next to the footstool. (laughs) Like, Like the rich person gets the chair and gets to put his feet up. The poor person comes in and sits next to the footstool. Aren't the rich people the ones that are dragging you into court? Why show favoritism toward the rich? And we would think here in this text, it should say, don't show favoritism toward the rich. But by saying don't show favoritism toward the poor, what are we learning? Don't show favoritism at all. Because if you can get it right to not be favoring of poorer people, then you can probably get it right to not be favoring of rich people. This eliminates bias based on class. Verse 6 mirrors it. You shall not pervert, there's our word again, not subvert, but pervert, the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. The poor depends so much on justice. And I I think this is a principle we need to learn. The poor is so dependent on a just system. I thought about it this way. The poor is less likely to have neighbors in a jury less likely to be on a first-name basis with a judge. A poor is going to come in and say, I hope justice happens today because I have no other recourse. Now, I want to say a word here as we leave this section about this economic discrimination potential. And that is this. Someone asked a question I thought was a really good question, but I didn't have time to answer it. Uh, The text, the question... And I didn't have time to answer it at the end of a service, but I thought it was a really good question. We've talked a little bit about justice to the poor and taking care of the poor. Um, And someone asked the question, well, doesn't the New Testament say that if a man does not work, neither should he eat? And it does say that. The New Testament absolutely does say that. And so what I want to give you right now is a word of guidance 
to make a distinction between the poor and the lazy. They are not inherently the same thing. The poor and the lazy. The Bible does tell us to steward very carefully the care for those who are simply lazy. And if they will not, if they refuse to work, then the consequence of that is that they won't eat. But there are people who are poor in spite of their very good work ethic. So be careful that you don't dismiss all this instruction of charity and of social justice to the poor simply because you say, well, they must be lazy. Now, let me be frank with you. We are probably all somewhat guilty of this. And I I think I inherited it from adults I was influenced by, and I might be passing it down to young people. But when you go somewhere and when you see a person panhandling or, or, or begging for money to survive, don't you quickly have the question, at least question, well, what are you doing with the money? And so we don't necessarily have a really healthy category for poverty. We only have subcategories for poverty because, poverty because, poverty because, and I'm going to suggest that that gets in our way of really being just in relationship to poor people. So would you, would you just prayerfully ask the Lord for wisdom in that? It's really hard here at church. Um, we have a lot of people stop by and they have needs. I was just on the phone with a woman this week and, and I'm listening to her give her explanation on the phone. And to be, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide, like, am I going to hear a conflicting story? Am I going to hear a, am I going to hear something that's going to let me know that this isn't a sincere request? And so I think in our fallenness, we do struggle in this category. And I think being careful to not assume that lazy and poor are the same thing is important for social justice. So here God instructs us how we should care for the poor, how we should not misrepresent, how we should not give false testimony, even to the point where the legal process is, is perverted and the innocent are put to death and the guilty are set free. Justice. Our God is just. Our God is just. Have you, have you ever wondered, how can God be just and let sinners into hell? Or let sinners into heaven? Or send anyone to hell? How can our God be just? And I want to point out to you that God did not simply dismiss our sinning, but rather ordained a substitute for the penalty of our sinning. That is justice. And that this is the work of Christ. Christ atoning for. He is the, uh, the word is propitiation. Propitiation means the wrath extinguishing sacrifice. Christ is the propitiation. He extinguishes the wrath of God. And justice is offered to sinners in Christ. So we see, first of all, God's command for his people who are by his name to be just. He is just. Just in relationship to the impoverished. And then let's look at the tip of the key. Okay, so we've, we've walked through some of the notches. There's a tip to this key, and it's really significant. It's in verses 4 and 5. It's justice to an enemy. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey running away, going astray, bring it back to him. If you see one of his animals, a a beast of burden, 
of the one who hates you. Now, by the way, I, I want to point out here that this is a two-way street. So you've got an example of the one you hate, and you've got an example of the one who hates you. Okay? So in both cases, this is the instruction. If you see his beast of burden lying down under his burden, you should not hastily run away, but you should stop there and work with him to rescue it. So the guy who hates you, who has a animal of burden, who has collapsed under the weight, stop there and the two of you partner in a solution. Whew. That could be that could be tricky. The first example that we read right here in verses 4 and 5 is the example of social justice to an enemy. The very pretext of your relationship with an individual can ruin the hope of justice, can't it? The very pretext. There's no way I'm going to do that for them. It was just three weeks ago. They did this to me. And social justice is hopeless. So God's law instructs people in their fallenness to not discriminate or not hold back justice from someone who is an enemy. God's expectation for his people concentrates here. I told you the chiastic structure. So we work away like one, uh, eight, two, seven, three, six, four, five. There's the tip. There's the, the tip of the arrow. And here's where it focuses. God's law for social justice centers on our humble attitudes. That's important. God's instruction for how we deal justly rests on the foundation of gospel attitude. Even while I was a sinner and an enemy, Christ died for me. That's, that's a gospel attitude about dealing rightly with our enemy. I told my family I was going to tell a story. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to try to make it quick, but it's a very amusing story, and so I could get lost in the weeds, but we're doing okay so far. I'm well under the record. So, um, I have a neighbor, one neighbor, who lives across the street from me, who, as I typed this, I was typing these notes, and I typed this story, and I type, I have a neighbor who hates me. I wrote the word hate, and then I took that word out. And I wrote, strongly dislikes. That's the way it's written in the notes. You do with it what you will. Wait till I tell the story. <laughs> and, and from the very first day that we moved in, he has taken objection to everything. We basically avoid our front yard. We don't even go out in the front yard because as soon as we do, he comes out and he, he'll yell things and he'll, he'll curse at the kids and just complain about everything. And then, and then if I'm ever out there, he'll yell something like, preacher man, why don't you get back inside your house and read your Bible? And he's always calling me preacher man and he curses a lot and yells. And if you come to see me and you accidentally turn around in, my, in his driveway, like if you come to see me and you turn on his driveway, he'll come outside and let you know what he thinks of that too. So, so I have this neighbor who is what seems like here from this definition, an enemy. And so I thought, okay, how can I help illustrate what it means to have justice to an enemy? And then I thought about an occasion this past spring, the end of winter. I had come here to church for something, and I was running home. 
And as I was driving home, I saw a fair-sized black bear for the spring, a fair-sized black bear running across um, Hummingbird into my neighborhood. And I was like, oh, well, you don't see that every day? And so I kind of drove around and tried to find this, this bear. I actually got out because there were some other neighbors a couple blocks away that were doing some gardening. And I said, I said a black bear just crossed the road. Did you see it come through here? And no. And so I got back in the truck and started driving around a little bit. And sure enough, after a little while, I see that black bear running down the ditch of my road. Just on the ditch. And I was driving, and I had pulled my phone out, and I was filming this black bear. Walked down the road in Rib Mountain. I thought that was neat. I think the black bear just came out of hibernation up on the mountain and was headed toward Texas Roadhouse. Best I could figure. <laughs> And so I'm filming, I'm driving like this, and I'm filming, and, and I look up, and my neighbor is out in his yard with sound protection on, running his leaf blower. And as I drive toward my house, my house is on this side, his house is on this side, and the bear is running here. And I told my family I would be honest, and here's honesty, here's honesty, my fallenness. I had a moment where I thought, I'm not going to warn him. <laughs> That's honest. That is honest. I did think that. And then my next thought was, I'm filming this. My own phone will be evidence. <laughs> so I drove a little ahead as the bear. The bear was now moving, because I was close to it, so the bear was now moving into yards. It was running through front yards. And he was leaf blowing his driveway. So the bear is on a crash course with this neighbor who has no idea any of this is happening. And so I pulled up a little bit and I waved at him. I said, hey, there's a bear in the neighbor's yard. He took his headphones off. I said, I just want to let you know there's a bear. And he said, I don't care about bear. I see bear all the time. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and so I don't know necessarily how it's going to go in this example when you try to be just and fair with someone who is your enemy or someone who you're the enemy of. But I know that it is a gospel orientation for us to not apply what is gracious to those who deserve it. Because that's not even grace. And so in this economy of grace that we live in as sinners, how we deal with our enemy is important. And there is a command of God to deal justly with those who are enemy. Look at, look at verse 9. So maybe it's not an enemy. Maybe it's not a neighbor who you have a strained relationship with. But maybe it's a foreigner. I think this is really practical right now because there's a lot of conversation, especially this past week, some of the restrictions for allowing people into our country uh, expired. They were lifted. And so there's a lot of conversation about why or why not allowing foreigners into our country. And probably in this room, there are a variety of very strong passions about that issue. And I simply want to give this warning from Scripture. That if the reason we are hesitant to deal justly with foreigners is because they're not like us, then I think that's an offense to this instruction. I think principally, it's an offense 
to be biased or partial to someone simply because they're unlike me. I think there's, we can see pretty easily that there's a lot of pride and arrogance in that conclusion. Everyone deserves good who's like me because inherently in that claim, I deserve good. But I don't deserve good. And so therefore, people who are not like me are in a similar situation of depending on grace and needing this justice that God instructs his people to live by. He says, you should not mistreat the foreigner. It it literally says this, you know the heart of a foreigner. You know the heart of a foreigner. You have felt in your chest the aches and pains of being the foreigner. Now, you say, well, I was never enslaved in Egypt. And I just want to give this word of wisdom to the church. We are living right now with the aches and pains of being a foreigner. Do you have any idea how hard it is to wait for what we know is going to be so awesome? I mean, knowing that King Jesus will rule his people for eternity and we have to wait? If there's ever been an alien feeling, a foreigner feeling, I think the church feels it. I think the church feels the ache of foreignness maybe more than anybody ever has. And so I think when God gives us this instruction, I think there is definitely a principle for us to learn from. I think befriending the outcast, the the downtrodden, the oppressed, the hurt, the neglected, I believe that those things can come somewhat naturally to us because of our spiritual condition, need, and rescue. So I would challenge you, church, that, like I said last week, because of this work of Christ in us, because of this this new birth, this regeneration that we have in Christ, these horizontal planes of justice should become much clearer to us. And so if you have had moments where you felt like, oh, there's no hope for social justice. It's either over-applied or under-applied or totally ignored. I just want to encourage you that it's not that there's no hope. (laughs) It's that in that regeneration, I believe the best hope to be a good neighbor and and a, a good citizen, the best hope is the church. We were once blind and deaf dead in our sin totally committed to our own evil and then we've been brought from death to life and given eyes to see and ears to hear and now I believe the joy of wisely applying all sorts of justices to the glory of God let me pray Father I'm thankful that you've given us this path of instruction 
a word that is a lamp to our feet. I know, Lord God, that social justice is a delicate conversation in our community at large. But Lord, because of this renewed life, the spirit that lives within us, the teacher who is guiding us, because of your spirit sealing us, I'm confident that the church can make applications of benevolent care for strangers, for people that are different, or for people that are just plain difficult enemies to come alongside them and to graciously extend loving help and justice. So thank you for, first of all, God, the work of renewing us. Thank you for the nature of the church and its ability. And then I pray that you would guide us by your spirit in your word to know how to steward those things that are just and honoring to you. So we pray and we're thankful for the instruction. And we pray for your wisdom to lead us in it. In Christ's name.